This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guests today are Eric Freeman and Elizabeth Robson. Together, they present the O'Reilly online training course, Design Patterns Bootcamp. The next offering of that will be on September 13th and 14th. And you can find out more and sign up for the course at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to Safari Books Online for more details. Eric and Elizabeth have also co-authored numerous books, including Head First Design Patterns and Head First JavaScript Programming, and they are the co-founders of Wickedly Smart, an online learning company for software developers. Also, a little later in the program, we'll get a preview of the upcoming O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference in London. Enjoy the show. We're delighted to welcome Elizabeth Robson and Eric Freeman. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Eric. Hi there. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Yeah, thank you both for joining us. Um, We'll first start by talking about design patterns. And just to set the stage, can you give us kind of a summary overview of what a design pattern is? I know you've said that design patterns are solutions you apply, not code libraries you download. Right, and that's a very important point about design patterns. So design patterns are these um, hard-fought solutions to object-oriented problems. And they're hard-fought because um, often they're not very obvious. Um, And so as you said, they're not libraries, they're not modules, they're not something that you go out and grab and put into your code. They are design techniques that you take and you apply to your particular situation as you're creating your own object-oriented design or perhaps even refactoring one. Right. And they're very conceptual rather than code-oriented, like Eric just said. So you think of them as, as more like designs rather than implementing code. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but design patterns are based on object-oriented principles, and you kind of need familiarity with object-oriented programming to understand them. Can you talk about design patterns from the perspective of someone who's coming into it from an object-oriented programming background? Uh, Design patterns are much more than good object-oriented concepts, right? Right. And and you mentioned a few things there which are important. So um, if you take someone who, you know, I mean, you've got to start somewhere, right? So, you know, most people have had, you know, the standard object-oriented 101 type course. And when you come out of that, you know, you learn things about inheritance and abstraction and polymorphism and, and all of those those topics. And I think a lot of people come away from that training thinking, wow, I know about inheritance. You know, I, I'll have no problem creating a good object-oriented design. And by the way, let's talk about what we mean by good. What is a good object-oriented design? It's really, in general, a design that is flexible and maintainable. And the really important thing is that um, it can deal with change because, as we know, any piece of software that you're building, it's going to live for a long time. So, you know, your requirements are going to change. It could be that the environment you're operating on is going to change. And software really needs to be good um, at that change. And so, you know, something that you need to be good at with object-oriented design is creating designs that are flexible and that can handle that change. And back to what I said, you know, a lot of times we come out of that initial training thinking we're all ready to take that on. Well, it turns out there's a whole nother layer on top of that um, that we call design principles. And Design principles are, are really, the really guidelines, guidelines for helping you to not create bad designs. And um, guidelines give you little hints as you're constructing your objects um, and how to construct those objects so that they lead to good design. Just knowing those design principles alone will make you a much better object-oriented programmer. Well, can you say a little bit more about how design principles differ from design patterns? Well, design principles are things like responsibility principle, which tells you to keep your classes really small and focused on maybe doing one thing, whereas a design pattern is more of a solution to a very specific problem. So like the observer pattern says, when you have 
an object that's holding a piece of data and you have other objects that are interested in that data, here's how you can structure your design so that those objects can communicate in a loosely coupled way. So design patterns are much more specific about the kinds of problems you're going to be solving and the kinds of solutions you're going to create for those problems. Whereas design principles are much kind of lower level things about the way that you think about designing your classes and your and how you create objects. So you mentioned earlier that design patterns can solve what we call non-obvious design problems. Uh, can you give us an example of, of a non-obvious design problem? Well, I, and I would, I would um, restate that a little bit, which is, you know, problems, um, you know, usually they slap you in the face. They're not, they're not non-obvious. Like the problem's very obvious. The solution is the thing that is not obvious. You know, and I went back to this point about um, design patterns sort of coming out of a lot of experience. So, you know, we have these problems that, that recur um, when, we're, when we're creating object-oriented designs. They tend to recur over and over, and the solutions aren't very obvious. Design patterns are solutions um, that have through experience been applied over and over to a particular problem. And if you use them, you can really shortcut your kind of your design by not making all the mistakes everyone else has made. You can just go ahead and use that design pattern to solve that problem. Right. So the kind of problem that we're thinking about, going back to that example I gave earlier when we were talking about the difference between principles and patterns, the kind of problem is like if you have these objects that need to communicate in a certain way, the design pattern kind of gives you a guideline to how you would structure your design so that you solve that problem without making all the same mistakes that everybody else made, like Eric just said. Um, so it's just it's a guideline to a problem, to solving a problem. And in your online training course, you walk the participants through a design process example, which involves ducks. Um, and right. who, doesn't, who, who doesn't love ducks? So can you can you, can you kind of go through that example with us here? Well, sure. The, exa yeah. the example runs about a half an hour in the course, so um, we can we can give you the high points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, the um, the reason ducks are used is ducks have a, a very um, kind of traditional usage in early design pattern literature. So we we continue that. But the other reason they're used is just a very simple example. And so what we actually do, we've we've found um, both in the head first design patterns book and and in our teaching that the best way to really introduce someone to a design pattern isn't to just pull out design pattern number one and problem number one and put them together. It's really to show someone a really simple design problem, take them down the garden path, which is what we do, um, using those standard techniques we talked about that you learned in your object-oriented one-on-one course, and uh, everything quickly grinds to a halt and becomes a mess. Um, and then we pull out some design principles, which we just talked about, to get a little inspiration, and we really back ourselves into a solution, which happens to be a design pattern. So, you know, the whole point of that duck example is to kind of show someone why, why would you even need this design pattern? And, you know, where do the principles come in? So we, we've been doing that example for a long time now, and it seems to work very well introducing people to patterns. And one of the things I really like about that example, too, is it really clearly shows you how to, to integrate the, these principles in sort of thinking about, well, what are, the good, what are good ways to think about the design and how does that change the way I think about the problem that I'm trying to solve? And then the pattern shows you how to kind of implement those principles. So the pattern comes along and says, well, here's how you structure your, your design that's based on the principles that you just learned. So it's like the pattern builds on those principles to solve the problem. And specifically, the problem with the ducks is about we have some a duck simulator and we have you know, regular ducks that are flying for a demo. And then all of a sudden, somebody adds a rubber duck to the simulator and we have flying rubber ducks. And so the, 
the problem is kind of built around, well, how do we make sure that we don't have flying rubber ducks in our simulator? And how do we make yeah, sure that we can add add new ducks and new behaviors without like having to change the whole system? Yeah, and I was just going to say kind of at a higher level, um, Jeff, just to summarize that, you know, what that duck uh, experience is all about is, you know, as Elizabeth said, we start with, with a duck simulator. It's very simple, um, you know, and it has a few uh, concrete duck objects in it and a, a super class um, duck. And then you get a few uh, change requirements along the way. And you would think they would be quite simple change requirements, and they certainly look simple on paper. Um, but as I said, uh, things quickly get out of hand, an example. And then, you know, we, we again, apply those techniques and, and kind of save the day with a design pattern. You also stress the concept that design patterns create a shared vocabulary. Can you talk about the importance of that and especially how it might help development teams? Yeah, absolutely. And this this is something we stress a lot um, in the book and the course. So um, there's actually a nice analogy for shared vocabularies that we set up in the book and in the course, um, which is around a diner. So, you know, imagine you have a diner with two waitresses, Alice and Flo, in a short order to cook. And we have Alice giving the first order, which is something like, I need a cream cheese with jelly on white bread, a chocolate soda with vanilla ice cream, a grilled cheese sandwich with bacon, a tuna fish salad on toast, a banana split with ice cream and sliced bananas, a coffee with cream and two sugars. Oh, and put a hamburger on the grill. So that's Alice's order. And then we have Flo who says, give me a CJ White, a black and white, a Jack Benny, a radio, a houseboat, and a regular coffee and burn one. So, you know, what's the difference between those two things? Well, Alice's is about three times as long. um, But, you know, in terms of... um, the orders, they're exactly the same. The, the difference is that Flo and the short order cook have a shared vocabulary. So, you know, what does that mean for the short order cook? One, he doesn't have to listen to three times the number of words, but more importantly, he doesn't have to remember all that. That's so much to remember if you've got to remember that specific order. In the case of Flo, um, that short order cook, he's already got those patterns in his head. You know, he knows what the CJ White is. So he's just got to remember about five things and he's got the whole order. And it's right. <laughs> Yeah, and it goes the same with, with patterns. So yeah, and I can't believe you didn't name the short order cook. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we did, did we? It says something about us that we that we all have the uh, shared vocabulary of understanding who uh, Alice Mel? and Flo are. This would be yeah. Mel, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good point. I, I can but say then, in uh, 14 years, no one's ever pointing that out, but until, until now. But I like that. Go ahead, I really like that example because it, it just translates so perfectly to patterns because, you know, if you have somebody who's saying, hey, I created this broad class class, it keeps track of all the objects who are listening to it. And anytime a new piece of data comes along, it sends a message to each listener and you have this long explanation about your design. And you could just say, hey, I'm using the observer pattern. And it's it captures all of that information and just in a much more precise and concise way that makes it easier for your team to communicate about what exactly you're trying to do. Yeah, and the important thing is your team Your team has to know them, right? You know, you can't say observer pattern um, if, if your team doesn't know what it is. But think about it, when you say observer pattern, if your team does know what it is, then there's a whole set of qualities and design and constraints, you know, that, that get applied if you know that pattern. You know, again, as Elizabeth said, without that big, long description of the thing you created. So when you've got a team that, that really knows those patterns, um, then, you know, you can really, you can really move pretty quick. And, you know, something I've observed many times is sitting in a design meeting, you know, and the next thing you know, like everyone's in the weeds talking about implementation, you know, and if, if you're really kind of talking, you know, not only in terms of design patterns, but design principles and kind of higher level object oriented design, 
you know, you can really keep your meetings a lot more productive and kind of up at the design level, which is what you should be doing in a meeting. You can deal with the implementation, you know, back at your desk. Up to this point, I've mostly been referencing your online training course, but of course, you guys co-authored the book Head First Design Patterns. Now, there exists a book that uh, on design patterns by the, the gang of four, so to speak. So can you kind of give us a little bit of history of, of how the book came to be? Sure. So, you know, the Gang of Four book is it's the seminal um, design patterns book, you know, written by Eric Gammon, his colleagues, and and always will be. I mean, that, that is the book. We, uh, you know, about 13, 14 years ago at this point, um, we were collaborating with O'Reilly, in particular with Mike Hendrickson O'Reilly. And Mike really saw the need for um, a book which was more of a learning book about design patterns. And, uh, you know, at the time, we recognized this as well because you know, the design patterns community um, is is in some ways, uh, or at least started this way, is a very academic community. And you know, a lot of the literature was was um, academic. You know, sometimes a little little hard to wrap your head around. And we saw this as well. Um, and so we really wrote head first design patterns as the learning book. This is how you learn about patterns, particularly the gang of four, some of the gang of four patterns. And so we wrote it. Um, to be honest, uh, you know, it was written in the head first format, which if if the uh, audience is familiar with that format. You know, it's a little bit of a whimsical format. And uh, as two um, just coming out of academics, two people just coming out of academics ourselves, we we're honestly a little terrified <laughs> putting this book into that community. Um, and so, you know, there was a day when um, we took half the book and sent it actually to Eric Gamma, and we're terrified about what was going to come back. And uh, at the same day, we got a message back from Eric saying, um, I'm just going on a vacation. And we thought, okay, he hasn't read it yet. And he said, please send me the second half so I can read it. <laughs> And um, Eric, Eric, yeah, we were like, oh my gosh, what a good sign. And Eric really um, liked the book and went through every piece of it, of the book, just and which gave us a lot of confidence. Um, and so that was a wonderful thing to happen. And we thank Eric, Eric for that. Um, so ours is really the learning book. And Eric, uh, and um, the Gang of Four book is really um, the definitive book, the reference. Um, yeah, so I call that a reference guide. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's the catalog. It's the catalog. <laughs> it's the catalog. Yes, because that that has you know a, a wide variety of patterns um, it, listed in the book, and our book really focuses in on a few of those patterns and really tries to teach them very very well and in depth in a you know a very different way than the Gang of Four book is structured. So I, I think too, we also bring out those design principles we met, mentioned, which um, if you're not that familiar with them you're not going to get out of the Gang of Four book just reading it. And so we tried to bring that all together in one place. And, it, and at the time we wrote the book, it was not in one place. It took, a lot of, it took a lot of research to bring that book together. Yeah. The cool thing about design patterns is that, you know, as a topic, the, princ- the principles, the, the patterns, all of the, the things that go into learning that material hasn't really changed. So, you know, it's still, even though it's been... 23 years, I think, since the original Gang of Four book, and then 13 or 14 years since our book. It's really still, these are the core ideas for design patterns, and that and that doesn't change. And I'm going to move on to other things besides design patterns in a minute, but I do have to ask, so why do you call your, your training course a design patterns boot camp? Well, it, it really is the, um, you know, kind of the quick start. So, you know, the book itself is about 700 pages, um, I think covers 13 or 14 of the uh, of the original Gang of Four patterns. And, you know, if we were to if we were to approach if we were to fully teach that book, it, you know, it would take a few weeks of three hours a day. So what we did is we took uh, a six hour course, three hours each day. And we're just trying to get people we're trying to do a flyover of it all. So they're in a really they're in really good shape to take it on on their own. So we we do cover um, quite a bit of the, the, the topics, but we do it 
in a little more superficial way um, than is in, in the book. And it's really, it's just meant to be a boot camp um, to get you up and running, you know, so that um, you're ready to take on more. Yeah. And it is kind of intense, like a boot camp. I think. <laughs> it is. I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot in that six hours. <laughs> there is. Well, let's talk about Wickedly Smart, the educational technology company that you both co-founded that's devoted to helping others achieve technology mastery. Uh, Elizabeth, can you start by talking about what led you to start the company and, and what was your, your collective goal from, uh, from the outset? Well, it really came out of what Eric and I were doing with Head First, in addition to um, other Head First authors, Kathy Sierra and Burt Bates, who are the ones who started the Head First series. And we really felt like the Head First series is a great way for people to learn about the programming related topics. And because, you know, it's just a different format. Some people really resonate well with it. And we wanted to extend what we were doing in the Head First books into the online space. And Kathy and Bert had kind of started that. They had they had created wickedly just smart.com as a way for people to go online and find information about the books and and be able to communicate with one another. And so Eric and I really wanted to kind of take that further. So we kind of pushed it further than just a website into an actual learning company. And so our goal for the site is really to put things there that will help not only people get more out of the books, but also kind of take their learning further. So our goal is to create little online snippets of projects that they can do to further their learning, to create content that helps them understand more about the topics that we talk about in our books and go into other topics that we haven't talked about in our books as well. Well, I want to ask you about one of those projects in, in just a minute, but from from the experience at, at Wickedly Smart, what do you find that programmers and developers are, are most looking for to help them grow and succeed? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think Elizabeth was kind of getting to this. You know, we've got we've got sort of the head first books um, as, a, as a way to get in and learn a topic. So let's instead of talking about design patterns, let's talk about like HTML, HTML and CSS, for instance, or and, and let's say JavaScript. You know, so we find readers will go through those books. They'll learn the material. Um, they seem to love that format. It keeps them motivated and they actually finish doing it. But then they get to the end and they have the question of, OK, great. Now what do I do? I feel like I really need to integrate this knowledge. Our word, not there usually. But, you know, by integrate, I mean, OK, I know HTML, I know CSS, I know JavaScript. How do I make all this work together? And so um, one of one of the recent thrusts of the company has been to create these projects where people can get in um, almost, it's almost as if we could create the projects almost as if you're working with an expert who knows how to integrate those technologies. And you kind of walk through them conceptually through an entire project, putting it all together, you know, whether that's HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but you also, you know, we, we make it so it's multidisciplinary as well, where there might be art assets you need, you might need additional information, you got to go out to the web and get. So we try to make it we try to approach it just like you would do a real project if you were sitting down to do it from scratch as an expert that knew how to do that. Well, one of the projects that's up there now is the Game of Life project. So can you talk about that and what kind of audience is participating in that project? So the the Game of Life project is about building the Game of Life, which, which is a cellular automata kind of uh, generative application. So it's very simple rules, but it creates some really interesting effects on the screen when you implement it in a way that you visualize what's going on. And so it's been a sort of a cornerstone in the generative application space um, as an interesting way to explore how to do generative applications and the kinds of things that you can do with generative applications. And it's very, very cool because with just not that much code, you can do some really interesting things. And so we put that together as a way for people to 
really take all the things that they've learned about web development in our books, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, like Eric said, and kind of take it to the next level. Yeah. And just um, just to add to that, you know, you might say cellular automata, what the heck? That sounds like, you know, kind of a complex, um, you know, out there project. How did you get to that? As Elizabeth said, you know, the thing about that particular project is the algorithm itself is about four or five lines of code. That's it. Um, The surprising thing from that project is from those four or five lines of code, you get very unexpected behavior that no one would have guessed. And so it makes it a very fascinating type of project to do. And very on in the project, we kind of establish that. It's like, check this out. It's really cool. All right, let's make it. Let's build it now. Um, And so... One thing that um, we have really tried to do both at Wickedly Smart, but also in in the Head First series is we spend a lot of time thinking about what is the thing, what is the example we're going to use to teach someone something, you know, what are we going to, what example are we going to take someone through? And um, both having, uh, both of us having read way too many technical books um, where the example is let's, let's implement another little accounting system, you know, Um, you know, those just don't engage the brain very well for most people, at least. (laughs) So, you know, we really spent we really spent a lot of time and effort coming up with examples that we think will engage people and that they're going to get through. And I think, wow, I really built something and that was really cool. Take a look at this. Um, I'll give you another little example, um, which I actually have to credit um, Kathy and Bert with is um, it's very simple, which is, you know, they had in Head First Java, someone implement just a little battleship game, you know, the classic kids battleship game. And we did that as well in Head First uh, JavaScript, right, Elizabeth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It could, have, it could have been in three different books. But um, and so we do that all in the browser, you know, with, you know, no, no apps required. It's just in the browser and we have the you play the computer. And so we did that. And it was it, it's a cool example. And for, for what we were teaching, it's, a, you know, there's some topics which just aren't that interesting to teach. They're very basic. But for what we were teaching, it was it's a really fun example. And, um, you know, at the end, you have a little game. Well, we've had people just go crazy with that and create these very elaborate versions on top of what they did in the book, which is just fascinating to watch. Let's talk about uh, a couple of other projects that you're both involved with. Um, Elizabeth, we should also mention that you're also presenting the O'Reilly online training course, Introduction to JavaScript Programming, on September 26th and 27th. So in your experience from, from doing this course in the past, what's the one thing that someone new to JavaScript, maybe someone coming from, from another language, um, needs the most help? to grasp? Oh, goodness. Well, quite a few things, but like some of some of the basics are like JavaScript scope is really tricky for people because it's so different from how other languages handle scope. And so I, you know, I get a lot of feedback from people that, you know, understanding scope properly is really important. Something I don't get to in the introduction course is really anything about object-oriented programming in JavaScript, and that's something we do a lot in our book, Head First JavaScript Programming, um, because that's also somewhat different in JavaScript than it is in other languages. So those are two things. But even just basic types in JavaScript can be tricky for people. And the course that um, this JavaScript course that I'm doing just barely scratches the surface of JavaScript, unfortunately, because there's so much to learn and so little time in these courses. But the goal is really to get somebody kind of just up to speed enough that they can actually then go turn around and read a JavaScript book, whether it's ours or somebody else's. And Eric is hard at work on a new book, which is tentatively scheduled to come out at the end of this year. The book's called Head First, Learn to Code with Python. And Eric, Python has a reputation for being relatively easy for beginners to pick up and start programming with. But I know that one of your goals with with this book is to try to get readers to think computationally. What do you mean by that? One way to say that is, you know, this book isn't a book to teach you Python, you know. So it's really to teach people how to think about 
whether you want to say coding or programming, and you can apply that to whatever you want. But, you know, there are these basic techniques that no matter what you're coding, you know, whether it's your home light system um, or something in, in a web page or on the server side, you know, there's the same set of, of techniques that we all use um, when we're doing that. And so the book is meant to teach you to think about um, how to code, how to program, how to think computationally. I mean, not, those aren't exactly the same things, but it does that using Python as a vehicle. But I very much hope that people can then go and pick up whatever they need to um, after after that. You know, so it's it's not um, it's not an intro to Python programming. It's really an intro to programming, and and you know, which is very much um, meant for people who have never programmed at all. And I'm really excited about this book actually because I've been getting little previews and. It's really fun, and Eric is doing an amazing job, so I'm very excited about it. Well, and it's, you know, it's back to what we were talking about before. Uh, you know, I, anytime um, I write a book on a topic, I try to go read everything that else that has been written on the topic. And, you know, there's a lot of those accounting level, uh, you know, topics out there that are examples out there that people use in, in, the, in the book. So a, a lot of, I think a lot of books in the space, too, are, um, are a little more oriented towards, like, the beginning computer science student um, and... I would say very math focused, which um, I got a lot of feedback early on um, before I wrote the book in terms of please don't make it too mathematical. And um, so, I, you know, I've, I've actually stayed away from that a bit and tried to get examples in there, which are very computational and very interesting. But, you know, they're not um, they're not they're not computing square roots and things like that. So now there's anything wrong with those books. There's a lot of great books out there written around that topic. But I've just I've tried to I've tried to make it for a little different audience. OK, let me throw out a left field question now. Um, I know that you're both into, into music. You're both musicians. If you could talk about anything music-related that you're enthusiastic about for two minutes, what would that be? Elizabeth? Oh, my goodness. Well, I am much less of a musician than Eric is, although I have played the piano when I was young, and I'm currently trying to relearn to play the harp. But one of the, the things that I love about music is just exploring new music, discovering things that I like. Um, and actually do that a lot through other people, including Eric, because that's how you learn what other people like. And that's how you learn what you like. Um, so I spend, you know, most of my day when I'm working on writing or creating a course, I'm listening to music as I'm doing that. Um, and I find it helps me work. What's your current passion? Oh, my current passion is actually going back to some of the some of the stuff we actually listened to when we were writing headfirst design patterns. Um, a guy named JT Bookham. I've been listening to his work quite a bit lately, even though it's like I don't know, fifteen years old at this point. But I've I've been going back to that. And then I'm also working on a project for Wickedly Smart that's based on a generative application that generates ambient music and based on some work that Brian Eno has done. And so I've been listening to a lot of ambient music as well. Wow. So those are those are my current passions in the music space. How about you, Eric? There's, there's so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> Two minutes. There, there, there's a, so much in this area that that, that interests me. Um, um, there's the the computation music intersection, which there's just so much stuff going on and which is so interesting. By the way, you know, so the second project that we did with Bookily Smart is actually a generative music generator, which is um, very much in the spirit of some of the work that that Brian Eno and some of his colleagues have done with some of their apps. And so we teach people um, how to create that themselves. You know, beyond that, there's just so much going on in the, the computational music, I'm ma making up the term, but space, you know, in terms of tools that are out there, you know, actual programming languages like Max MSP and, and, and those things. So there's just, there's so much interesting there, you know, and, and like Elizabeth, um, I can't, 
either write code or I can't write books without music. I mean, it's just a constant, you know, like I have to have a soundtrack going all the time. And so um, I'm all, you know, and I'm all over the place, you know, in the last week and I've been writing a lot of learn to code and it's been, had, I had a whole uh, path down 80s music and then I came back with Debussy and Philip Glass. So, you know, like it goes all over the place, but in, <laughs> and I find it, dry, it drives, drives me somehow in, in, in terms of whether it's code or, or, or text that, that I'm writing. I think the other uh, thing I've been thinking about lately, too, is, you know, there's a lot of discussion lately about coding camps and, you know, can someone learn to code in, in six weeks and then go out be a professional programmer? And I, I um, compare that to an analogy, which is, can I, you know, pick up an instrument and go out and go to a, an instrument camp for six weeks and then and be a professional musician? And I think the obvious answer on that side is no way. Um, I think coding is a little different in that there are some entry, you know, th there's no entry level guitar job. Like you can't be okay at guitar and then go get paid for it. You have to be, you know, a session musician or a professional, which isn't true with coding. But I do think we have to think sometimes when we're teaching people to learn to code that it's a long path. And there's a lot of structures that need to get created in the brain to do it well. And it's, it's no different than, than something like music. Eric Freeman and Elizabeth Robson, authors, presenters of the Design Patterns Bootcamp training course and co-founders of Wickedly Smart. Thank you so much for joining us. And if listeners want to find out more about your activities, uh, where should they look? Yeah, just come to wickedlysmart.com, I think is, or, or hit us on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm Eric T. Free on Twitter. And I'm, I, I can't remember, Elizabeth Robson on Twitter. <laughs> Elizabeth and Eric, great speaking with you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so thanks, much for having us. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yep. Well, the next O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be held in London from October 16th through 19th. And here to give us a, a bit of a preview of that is Brian Foster, Content Director at O'Reilly Media and Co-Chair of the conference. Uh, Brian, can you tell us about some of the featured speakers at the event? Hi, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I can absolutely you know, tell you what's happening at this year's you know, London show, which I think is a really great show that builds on some of our past events that we've had. Um, and really, you know, focuses around a lot of the key themes, um, again, that that architects and developers are seeing in their day to day job. Um, really, you know, again, we have some great trainings. We've actually expanded our training offerings from um, our New York show to this show. And we're offering five two day trainings. And those are spanning you know, topics ranging from software architecture fundamentals down to moving to microservices, um, along with some newer topics, especially um, those you know, folks that are, that are interested in learning how to design serverless applications yeah. and architectures. And then also um, some, some interesting security topics, you know, particularly around um, threat modeling um, and what that means to an architect's job and how do they build security into their models ahead of time, um, you know, which is a really great area and some newer areas for us. But I think what re what's really interesting is we have some leading pr practitioners that are coming back um, and that continue to work with us at this conference and really make the show what it is. And those include, you know, key luminaries from Mark Richards and, and Sam Newman um, down to um, Mike Roberts, who's really pioneering this new serverless space, um, as well as Aaron Bedra, who's also really heavily invested in the security space, but how it how it hits and kind of you know, pertains to software architects these days. Are there any particular hot topics or trends right now in software architecture? Yeah, that's a really great question. And there are. Um, I think software architecture is moving into this space where microservices were the big thing and they still are big. And I think, you know, you know, enterprises and companies that have that are moving to them are, are moving, but they're thinking now, how do I scale thousands of services? How do I keep them running in production? How do I, you know, 
deal with issues such as, you know, integration between systems and how do I deal with the data concerns and how do I work with data? So we're seeing a lot of kind of moving to next level microservices. And that is dealing with how do I work with microservices now that I've kind of gotten past the one-on-one and I've implemented you in my company into how do I really make this a sustainable, how do I create a sustainable system of microservices? Um, so that's one key big area and kind of shift, slight shift. Um, for us and with the conference. We're also then you know, you know, really focusing on some of these newer kind of cloud um, architecture technologies. Um, and that, again, mo- the, the biggest one now is serverless. Um, and what that is, you know, how can, you know, architects take advantage of um, this new you know, architecture paradigm? It has similarities to microservices, but it's different. And a lot of what's happening in this space is being driven by um, AWS and kind of the creation of AWS Lambda you know, and functions as a, as a service. It's a really interesting area and one that we're covering extensively. And then, you know, some other key areas for us that continue to be key drivers for what makes this show what it is, is training, you know, again, senior developers, architects, in how to become a leader within their organization, how to communicate some key architectural choices and decisions, not only with their team, within their teams, but, you know, up through their organization and how they can really become savvy leaders. And, and again, this new world of digital transformation. Um, so those, those areas really are the ones that are you know, strongest for you know, the show and that continue to be you know, key drivers and key points of interest for our attendees. All sounds great, Brian. We've been talking about the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference in London, October 16th through 19th. And to find out more or to register, go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences or to safaribooksonline.com and look under O'Reilly Conferences. Brian Foster, thanks very much for joining us. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much for listening. And once again, if you're interested in the online training course Design Patterns Bootcamp presented by our first guests, Eric Freeman and Elizabeth Robson, you can find out more at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. And we'll have links for all the courses and books we talked about today in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.